Hi, welcome to Head Start, the podcast for race directors and the business of putting on races. It is May 2022, and whatever hopes and expectations we've all had of 2022 at the end of last year have started to materialize. Or have they? It's difficult to say how strongly our industry's recovery towards pre-pandemic levels has fared so far this year, particularly when we all individually get to see only parts of the bigger picture. Well, today, I'm delighted to be joined by two industry insiders who get to see as much of the bigger picture as any in our industry. Bob Bickle, founder of US Registration's market leader Run Signup, and Chris Robb, CEO of Mass Participation World and a passionate advocate for the endurance events industry. Chris and Bob come armed with data and a deep understanding of our industry and where it's currently at, and they'll be discussing with me the latest data on event numbers and registration trends, as well as more profound questions like, is it time for race directors to be raising prices? A question I'm sure many of you are asking yourselves. Before we go into all that, though, a quick reminder of how today's podcast was made possible, and that's through the support of our amazing sponsors. So many thanks to Run Signup, Race Director's favorite all-in-one technology solution for endurance and fundraising events, now powering more than 26,000 in-person, virtual, and hybrid events. And many thanks to RaceCheck, whose free RaceCheck review box widget can help you collect and showcase your participant feedback on your own website, helping you more easily convert website visitors into paying participants. Well, we'll be hearing a bit more from these two great companies a bit later in the podcast, but now, let's dive into our market update with Chris Robb and Bob Pickle. Chris, Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Panos. Great to see you. Well, thank you very much both for uh, taking the time to come on the podcast. So today, we're straddling a few time zones, it seems. Chris, you're in uh, Singapore, is that right? I'm in Bali, actually. Oh, you're in Bali. Okay, great. Even more yeah, exotic. Yeah. <laughs> Bob, what, what exotic uh, destination are you calling from? I'm in southern New Jersey. Awesome. <laughs> okay, that's great. You know, Bali, New Jersey. Can I get you guys uh, first off to just uh, introduce yourselves for me? You're both very well-known uh, quantities in the industry, but maybe not everyone in the on the podcast uh, would know about you. So let's take it in turn. Chris, you want to say a couple of things about you and your background and what you do in the industry? Yeah, thanks, Panos. So uh, Chris Robert, the uh, CEO and founder of Mass Participation World. And um, I, I've been in the industry now, I guess, 35 years and uh, and some gaps in between. I'm not 35 years old anymore, unfortunately. But uh, I started off um, in Zimbabwe. I was born on a farm in Zimbabwe, organized my first event when I was 16. And this will now start to date me because my, my first event was to raise money to resurface our Cinder Athletics track. And uh, and hopefully there's a few people on the call that remember the days of Cinder Athletics tracks. I think, Bob, you're a similar vintage to me, so you, you probably do. That's all I raced on, Chris. Yeah, me, me too. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, raised, I, I organized a fun run for that and, and it stuck. I, I went to university in South Africa and, and did a bit of travel and, and ultimately ended up in Australia. Um, and 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 I've had you know an incredible journey. I, I'm I'm very fortunate. Uh, was road event supervisor on the Sydney Olympics, which was an amazing opportunity. Um, and then JP Morgan came along as a client uh, and organised the JP Morgan Corporate Challenge in 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 Australia, and they wanted to take that to Asia. And and I had this wonderful opportunity to to help them launch that in Singapore. And uh, and 17 years later, I'm still in Asia. Married with, we were talking earlier, my little seven-year-old son was saying goodnight as we started. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I had the privilege of organizing the Singapore Marathon, which was 60,000 participants at its peak, created an event called Cycle Singapore, which came from an idea to 11,500 cyclists in Singapore and across the region, um, and, and then sold that business to Ironman and, and, and founded uh, almost simultaneously Mass Participation Asia as a, as a conference to kind of bring the industry together. That's now evolved into mass participation world. Uh, for obvious reasons, we haven't had any in-person conferences in Singapore, but uh, hopefully that's going to be back soon. Um, and, you know, engaging the industry globally, education, advocacy, research, consulting, um, and, you know, lucky to be involved in a, in a job that's my passion and, 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 and I love, uh, love supporting and engaging with the industry globally. Absolutely. And you have your own uh, podcast or podcasts, I, sh- I should say, Aid Station, right? And Global Updates. That's right. Yeah. So Aid Station's been started at the pandemic. So that's now, I think we're at edition 121. I think we've been to about 54 countries with guests on that. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, I started and I literally have just come off this week's uh, or yeah, this week's edition of Global Updates. So I, I do that twice a month on the first Tuesday and, and, uh, and the uh, fourth Tuesday of the month. And literally just reach out to the network. Uh, so far, we've been having a theme every every week. So today it was um, it was staff challenges and and, and solutions, and, and that's obviously topical, and we might get into that later. But yeah, 15, 20 minutes live on Facebook and LinkedIn, and then and then transferred into a podcast for people to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to be uh, touching on some of those uh, later on today. Bob, you want to say a couple of things about yourself? Well, I ran on cinder tracks <laughs> in high school and college, and. And quite honestly, running was a very foundational element in my life and uh, really important to me. Although I stopped competing after college, um, I got into software technology uh, and hopped on the internet uh, train in the 90s. I've been part of a number of uh, at least somewhat successful uh, uh, kind of internet startup companies, mostly in the Java infrastructure area. In uh, 2010, um, started up Run Sign Up really as a little side project and got lucky and met this wonderful young man, Stephen Sigwart. And uh, he's the real reason why Run Sign Up successful, just a, a genius, best software developer I've ever worked with. Um, we just started building stuff and people liked it and used it. And by 2019, um, Things had uh, gone pretty well for us. Uh, we had, uh, I think, somewhere around 20,000 um, events across the U.S. use us to sign up like six, seven million people. And, and it's, it's been a great ride. And uh, the past couple of years have been very, very strange. And I guess we'll get into that as we uh, as we go along here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you also uh, sponsor this podcast, for which we're very thankful ourselves and our listeners for supporting the work we do here. Um, well, just a, so- just a comment on that. Like, I really feel there are certain people in this um, community that I call the endurance community who have really good hearts and souls and try to help others. And I think, Thanos, that you're kind of one of those people. The support is really just out of admiration and trying to get good information out to people that are trying to put on races. Well, you're very kind, Bob. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate the kind words, I guess. We all do our bit to support this great, uh, very niche industry we're all in. So today, guys, we're going to have another market update episode. I say another one because we uh, seem to be having more and more of those. I thought, you know, like at the end of last year that that would be the end of it and there would be very little to update people on. But apparently 
it seems we may not be quite there yet. So it's important to do this update because lots of people, particularly on our um, Facebook group, our Race Directors group on Facebook, Race Directors Hub, have continued to ask questions about registrations, participation. They don't feel like things have fully recovered, although perhaps they think they, they, they should have. But also because, um, quite interestingly, both of you over the last couple of weeks posted a couple of very interesting pieces on the um, Run Sign Up blog, respectively, for Bob and on the Mass Participation World blog for Chris on some issues that seem to be lingering in the market, even after we've sort of, you know, officially called a close on the whole pandemic thing. And, um, you know, things around uh, loss of know-how and people moving on and a bit of sort of like muscle atrophy in the industry that we're going to be getting into that I think is very interesting for people to to catch up on. Also, you know, for people to also feel like they're not alone, because I, I suspect from reading things in the group that lots of race organizers are, are facing issues with local authorities, with permits, with other things, and they may suspect that, you know, they may be particularly unlucky. And, and maybe we end up seeing that some of these things have become a little bit more ingrained in the period we find ourselves in. But before we go into all those specifics, Let's start with a quick market update. And I guess Bob is probably best placed, at least to offer a perspective on what's happening in the US. In terms of, I guess, 2019 being the year we all look back on as the last best year out there, how close are we to getting to those numbers, 2019 numbers, in terms of registrations and market recovery? There's two ways to answer that. One is that if you look at events that happened in 2019 and happen um, so far in 2022, um, we're looking at down like 15 to 20%. So if, if an event survived, that event is typically down 15 to 20%. There's exceptions on the high end. Um, we also have seen uh, probably about 20% plus of the events that happen in 2019. And we track events that are over 500 participants. So they have at least some critical mass um, that those events, you know, about 20% plus have, have kind of disappeared over those three years. So that's, that's kind of the number we're seeing. It was kind of hidden from us because we are tracking kind of our top level registrations and revenue and transaction volume and stuff like that. And we um, had grown, uh, like, I think our Q1 report was 22 or 23% in terms of number of events on our platform. And the number of events and the number of registrations tracked perfectly parallel. They were both like 22 or 23%. So we thought, well, geez, the average size of an event is still the same. But we dug into it recently and 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 put out that new blog um, with that new data. So and, and that really resonated with a lot of people. Like, I can't believe how many calls and emails I got uh, as a result of that blog. And people were like, you're exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. There's a lack of energy. Um, things are down. It's just, it's, uh, it's, it's tough for the individual uh, race. So race for race, you say, sort of like like for like, races that were around 2019, those are 20% down in registrations. And then I also read in one of your pieces that uh, because you track data across the industry that looking at running in the USA data entries, that's also down sort of actual event numbers by another 20%. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, what we saw in terms of just the atrophy in races above 500 was 
typical of what happened. And I think that there's relatively few green shoots yet. So, you know, kind of, and this is probably skipping ahead on your questions, but I think what's what's going to happen is because there's fewer events out there, I think that there, it's a, presents an opportunity for new events to get created and new energy to kind of come into the community. Absolutely. Chris, what's your take from what you're seeing across the rest of the world? I guess the answer is it's there's quite a vast discrepancy um, from market to market. But, um, you know, as a generalization, I, I just had my global update, as I shared, and, and I got some numbers from Pierre de Villeroy from, from NUCO, um, who Bob would, would, I'm sure, know. He's, he's reporting 20 to 30% drop across Europe. Um, and I'm hearing bigger numbers in some of the other markets um, and, and, and as low as, you know, as, as much as 40% drop in some markets, uh, you know, recognizing that in, in the Eastern hemispheres, you know, th- things are, are really just on to come back in some markets. You know, China's gone backwards again. Um, you know, we've now got this phenomenon in, in many parts of Asia where we've just come out of Ramadan. So a lot of the Muslim countries have, have kind of closed down and had a bit of a pause. But also we're going into the monsoons and the, and the hot parts of the year. So, you know, the Bangalore 10K is happening in, in India this, this week, but it's a, a kind of an outlier. Normally that season's kind of shut down there. Um, think things are there's a few events starting to trickle back in other parts they just had the um uh, the ironman vietnam at the weekend um and 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 that was a little down but a, you know a, a successful event uh, numbers in australia seem to start being re- returning the number that i got given for new zealand is is a lot of events only at 65% of 2019 levels uh, and they've had a, a you know a bizarre season where the way that it worked for them they literally had a week of a month of events so uh, you know th- those got crammed in things are starting to come back now um, so so I think quite a long way behind I got some stuff out of Ethiopia from Dagmawetaware at Great Ethiopia Run they are clawing back the numbers but controlled because of lingering COVID still um, you might have seen some of the stuff on Comrades and and Two Oceans. Comrades is way behind, but it's got some way to go. They had a successful two oceans, I think 20 to 30% off if I'm right, but a great signal to the industry. The numbers out of, out of, uh, out of Latin America, real positivity, but still numbers down, sort of 20, 30% down on what, what they were in, in 2019 levels. So I think lagging behind where the US is at, but, but starting to get some nice momentum in summary. If we tried for what it's worth to look back and rate our own biases and expectations on what this time in 2022 should have looked like looking forward from 2021. I know, you know, like lots of people in fall of 2021 were predicting that maybe by this time it would have been a lot closer to a full recovery. How well do you think we did back then? Are we where we thought we would be? Are we ahead or are we behind? I think we're definitely behind where we thought we would be. We did our 2022 budgeting in October and November. Omicron was not big yet in the US. And so the numbers that were uh, hitting in March, April, May, um, June are going to be lower than what we had anticipated back then. Our January and February numbers were kind of what we had anticipated because we saw Omicron coming, but we thought that the recovery after that the the thing that we totally missed and you know because we just didn't look at this is that the the existing base of customers were going to take a hit of 20% and that that would still be existing in the springtime after omicron wave and i think if you were to look at the other parts 
Panos way behind. I think you know because of of the shutdowns that have happened, massive loss of of the industry across the region. So Australia, they're talking 20, 30 percent, which is maybe comparable to to, to what Bob was talking about, twenty percent in America. But then you look at Thailand, they're talking about eighty percent of the industry gone there. You hear anything in between that in in other parts of the world? You know, America, India now. Most of the big events have missed three editions. So the Mumbai Marathon will fundamentally have missed three years before before they come back in February next year. So, you know, I think, and, and we'll talk about commercial models later, but the knock-on impact of that is is absolutely enormous, way behind in, in, in many of those other markets. And do we think that all of that can be basically attributed to Omicron and the effect that has had on the market and maybe, you know, lingering psychology of participants not not wanting to come back and race? I think it's a combination, uh, Panos. I think at least half of it is on the um, event organizers and the other half is the psychology. It's not necessarily the wave. I think people have kind of gotten used to waves. And here in the US, I think that there's decreasing concern as waves build, like there's a wave that's building now in the US. And overall, I'd say that the amount of concern is is continuing to decrease, whether you're on the right or the left, you're blue or red. And what I mean by on event organizers is that I feel Chris was just talking about Mumbai hadn't happened in three years. Like the event organizers just naturally kind of lose some of their enthusiasm. Some of the people that were there have gone on to other things. Um, and there's kind of, you just kind of forget what you did three years ago. And, um, and then you have, as an event organizer, you have to have this concern of, well, what happens if a wave comes, right? And so like us, you know, we had a symposium planned at the end of January and had spent a bunch of money and, 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 and actually ate a bunch of money to put that on and it got canceled. Couldn't have it at all. A very disappointing from an emotional perspective. And, you know, you go through these, these, these uh, troughs of repeated emotional disappointments. I think the event organizers at the end of the day are just a little bit hesitant to really put a lot into it. My sense is that Omicron maybe masks some underlying market fundamentals, the challenge to the, the business model, which we'll talk about a little bit further, I'm sure. But also, I think in many markets, there was an erosion of trust in the consumer. Some people handled their refund policies well, others didn't handle it well. There was such a discrepancy. And, I, and I'm still hearing elements of that. People are saying, uh, you know, I'm not sure what your stats are, Bob, but, you know, the stats that Pierre's got is the, 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 the peak of the bell curve has moved a full three weeks closer to event day. What is that about? Maybe it's about people being indecisive. Maybe it's about them, uh, and this is speaking for Europe, maybe it's about them not being fit. But but I think part of it's more around the trust element. We want to see if this event's really going to go ahead. We want to see if there's another wave. So yeah, maybe COVID links to that. But but we've got it. We've got a massive, I, I think, consumer confidence issue. Uh, and and as Bob's pointed out, you know, many people. I was speaking to Hugh Brasher a while ago, and you know, the, this real concern that people have fallen out of love with participating. They've forgotten the vibe of being in a group. Um, you know, it, some people think it's this kind of fear of not coming back. I think it's less about the fear than we're out of the habit. We do other things now. We filled our lives with with different things. It's interesting because um, Bob, I think in, in your in your Q1 business update, I read a point you made there about early signups, which is what Chris was referring to there. And the fact that 
not having early signups in itself has second order adverse effects because then you don't have a substantially high, a large enough group of people to then refer others early enough into the race. So you get that kind of like knock-on effect. Yep. Yeah. There's a, there's a network effect that happens where we used to call it viral. We can't call it that anymore. But <laughs> word of mouth is the positive way to say it now. Um, and, you know, like if I signed up for a race that was going to happen in the summertime in January, I would tell my friends. But now I'm not going to tell my friends until I sign up for it, you know, the two weeks beforehand. And then that network effect doesn't have a have a chance to, to take hold as much as it as, as it used to. Yeah, which is also very practical, right? Because you guys also at, at Run Sign Up and others, you know, you have peer-to-peer referral infrastructure, right? You have lots of things that basically each sign up is a kind of like, you know, 1.2, say, signups kind of thing, right? Because every new member you Absolutely. bring on board, it has like an additional 20, 30% of in- encouraging others. Yeah, a number of our customers use this functionality called referral rewards. And like, if you sign up for an event, you, you have a special code that you can give to other people. And, and when they sign up, you know, it, we track that. And if say, if you, the race director can say, okay, if you get five people to sign up, you get $20 off or you get your full entry fee back. And the, the ROI on it is like incredible. It's like a thousand percent plus it's, it's, uh, it's really amazing how that works. And we track those stats and, and the referrals are really powerful. They're depending upon how aggressive the, the, the race is, it's, you know, 10 to as much as 40% of participants come through that referral program. Do we have a sense then this being one of the issues, whether perhaps organizers going a little bit more aggressive with their early bird pricing or other early sign-up incentives might help with this situation? I think so. Yeah. So we are seeing some of our kind of more aggressive, uh, higher energy um, race directors doing that sort of thing. So they're they're pulling out more stops. And so that's why, you know, the 20% down is 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 everybody, but you have these few bright stars that are figuring out ways to break out and still, you know, kind of bring people together. So if we try to just get into the head of each of the three constituents in the industry, say the organizers, the participants, and then other stakeholders like local authorities and stuff, I know you guys have your your finger on the pulse of the market in different ways. What's your feeling of where the race organizer mentality is at this stage? You both mentioned that, you know, there's a little bit of a hesitance in in investing and maybe people holding back a little bit. Do you have any concrete examples or any kind of kind of like recurring themes from your discussions with people on what's really in the minds of organizers? I'm hearing survival a lot. We're in survival mode. It's really hard. Um, we're exhausted. Everything's really challenging. I had some some quotes and and and, and I won't name the person, but you know, the, the next six months is is about trying to generate enough cash flow to survive until 2023, when we hope we'll be in. And this was a quote from Asia: "We'll be back to to 80 to 100 percent of 2019." So, so I, I think there's there's very much that yeah, it's survival. It, it's really challenging on on many different levels. Uh, you know, from supply chain to staffing, to 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 the entry, and 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 we're you know we're on a treadmill that's running really fast and just trying to stop being blown off the back of it. I think. Yeah, if you look at uh, race organizations in the U.S., um, 
even the largest ones are, are very small uh, businesses, right? And they all had uh, lots and lots of struggles to get through the pandemic. In addition, if you, you know, like the top 100 races only represent like five or 6% of the total number of participants. So it's that long tail that really makes up the majority of, of, of the community. Those are made up of like individual people that are a timer that have a van and go out and, and time races and things like that. And they basically got no income over the past couple of years. And so they had to find alternative things to do. And a number of them simply went out of business. So they're not in the business anymore, right? They may have tried to sell their equipment and things like that and got, you know, 50 cents on the dollar for their equipment, but it, it, it was tough for them. And then you take um, organizations, so nonprofit organizations, and I'll give you the example. So the, the reason Run Sign Up came along is I became involved in the Scott Coffee Run. And it's a it's a run put on by the local Rotary Club. I'm not a member of Rotary, but I became involved in this anyway. And um, so we had we usually have our organization meeting in January for a June race. And this year we didn't have the organization meeting until April. <laughs> and the committee was down by two very enthusiastic members because they had left the area. <laughs> And there were not replacements because the number of people that are going to the weekly rotary lunches is down by half. So they just don't have the people that are part of the club anymore. And the general level of enthusiasm was just down in the room. And people were like, what do we do to get the bagels? Who gets those? And, you know, it's just like, um, just the energy was kind of lacking and they had to do it because it's their biggest fundraiser of the year. Um, but it, it, it just, it, I, I just sat there in that room and I was like, this is what's happening in thousands and thousands of these races that are getting organized. And this is the reason why we're down 20%. <laughs> um, so it just became really crystal clear, uh, cause you just, it, at the end of the day, it's just people and people are tired. You know, they've gotten used to sitting and watching Netflix and, and not getting out. And, you know, I think as both of you have said, you know, people found other things to do and it's going to take them a while to kind of get back to IRL communities and being together with people. It's going to be, as you mentioned earlier as well, everyone can sense it should be incredibly demoralizing this start stop thing you know you try to put on your event another wave comes you know you try to get it back into the water but like you're not exactly sure so it takes its toll on you i'm sure and and chris you must have heard similar stuff from even much larger races across the world yeah absolutely i think that like you say that whole the finish line is you know it's kind of the analogy of starting the marathon and you know every time you run another 5k's the the finish line gets moved further and further down down the track and you know how how, how do you adjust for that with with all the unknowns and then all the staff issues that come with that uh you know so so just in a simple business sense i mean one of the statistics that i quoted on on tonight's call um and and this was a, a statistic from france some organizations with 80% new staff, a guy that I get a lot of insights from, Marcel Altenberg, who's a, a crowd scientist who, you know, Marcel, uh, you know, Marcel's telling me that, that many large size events, 40% of their key staff are seeing that event 
for the first time. So decision makers in key roles, start line finishers, course managers, uh, start, course, uh, start line managers, course managers. Um, so, so the amount of energy that's being poured into the recruitment process, the onboarding process. You know, I was talking to Mike Nishi, and you know, he's talking about the amount of time that he's spending in terms of onboarding staff, making sure that you know, going through a very very strong due diligence to make sure that you get staff that are aligned to your purpose and are going to be there for a long time and so on. But it all takes time and energy. And when you're managing, you know, your cash flow challenges around that, your permitting issues, which are, you know, we can talk about later as well, are challenging. It's just, it's really draining for for entrepreneurs. And, you know, as Bob said, many small businesses with, you know, two, three, four, five, 10, maybe 15 staff at, 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 at most, uh, you know, represent a large part of this industry. Um, and, and and many of them, you know, Kirsten from from um, from Canada, with Kirsten Fleming, was saying, you know, ma- many of them have just put up their hands and said, "Too hard. I'm just going to sell my permit." And you know, I, I just, you know, I've lost the love for it. I've lost the passion. Can't do it. You know, I used to get one piece of paper. I now need twenty, and I'm taking all this commercial risk to go with it as well. Yeah, I mean, it was never. I have to say, having tried it for uh, a couple of races, putting on races was never an easy job. Even even in in the best of times, right? I mean, it's a very challenging business, and then to have all of these things to also contend with, I mean, it can get really really stressful. I think resilience and and the whole like mental health of the industry is also something we want to look a little bit closer at. These churn rates we're seeing in terms of resignations and people moving on are not particularly unique to our industry, though. I mean, it's something that's happening sort of globally, right? Absolutely, and I and I think it, it presents some great opportunities for those that are, are are willing to look at them. We've obviously lost. You know, I think one of the challenges in our industry is that there's a lot of it that can't be taught in a university or a school. You know, the, the the experience of being able to walk onto an event site and understand what's going on and to be able to respond in in split seconds to situations often comes with experience, and 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 that for me is the fear that we've lost decades of experience. I, I have no doubt that. We're going to have an amazing industry. Is that going to be two years time, three years time, five years time? I think there's going to be a real need for our industry. And you know what? What I think is an industry we need to guard against is we lose this decades of experience, both in race directors, but also in volunteers, and they're probably going to be replaced by what's been missing for many years are the young tech savvy entrepreneurs, but they don't necessarily then have the operational skills. So the industry is at risk again, where these people come in, they have the skills to market. And we saw a lot of it in Asia. As the industry exploded in Asia, events would go from zero to 10,000 participants in their first edition. Um, And you had inexperienced people putting these events on, people getting injured, sponsors getting burnt and so on. So as an industry, how do we mitigate that risk of saying, well, how do we, it's going to be great to get people that get the whole generating more revenue side of things. But if they don't have the operational skills and we're on the front pages for all the wrong reasons, um, you know, there, there's an equal risk. So, you know, I think that, I think there's going to be wonderful opportunities, but there's going to certainly be challenges as we go through this transition. I always see the glass half full. Um, I see it as a wonderful opportunity where, you know, kind of things have died down and now there's a better opportunity if I want to go out and start an event. I'll use our own company as an example, is that, you know, we kind of really focused and fought through this entire pandemic and put a lot of energy in. We did not lose a, a, an energy at all during the pandemic. 
And, um, and we've benefited greatly, you know, like the industry might be down 20 plus percent or even 40%. If you add on the number of, uh, you know, races that have not reoccurred and, and, uh, the lower numbers per race and we're growing 20%. And the reason is because, you know, we're just that kind of entrepreneur that is finding the opportunities and is pushing hard. And, and we see customers doing that. We see some of our customers, you know, kind of taking, taking the opportunity and, and kind of moving forward. Yeah, it's tough and, and, and all that, but geez, there's fewer competitors out there for them. <laughs> you know, there's less 5Ks that are happening in the neighborhood. I'm kind of optimistic for the next year. I think the fall is going to be better. And I think that next year is going to be uh, a, a pretty good year. It's still a challenging market out there, and whatever hopes we've all had of a full recovery to 2021 numbers seem to have been a little bit premature, unfortunately. And it's been a very hard time for all you guys out there putting on races, whether it's through a non-profit, a for-profit, or a local running club. Well, hopefully, you're not giving up just yet. And as Bob said, this is maybe even the time to be bold and to be looking to improve and grow the races you already put on. For those of you looking to do that, there's one platform that can really up your game across almost every aspect of your event, from the way you take registrations to how you market your race and even how you manage your event on race day. And that's Run Sign Up. You know, I keep banging on about Run Sign Up because beyond the great people I frequently get to speak to over there, I hear great things about Run Sign Up all the time from the hundreds of Run Sign Up customers that are part of our Race Directors HQ community. And that's all stuff you just can't fake. So take a minute, just a minute, and go visit runsignup.com. Have a look at the features they have to offer. And if you have any questions or want to see more of those tools in action, just click to book a free demo. It's right there at the top of the page. Give it a try. 26,000 races can be wrong, you know. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. In terms of where the participants' minds is, I know that, Chris, you've been tracking the actual factual effects of COVID on participation and the fact that, you know, there's been maybe like two or three infections among like millions of participants in events through the pandemic. Do we feel that despite that, people are quite apprehensive about getting out on those start lines again? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the statistics were amazing. And, you know, again, I think to qualify it, it was just a simple self-reporting, you know, events giving us their, their data. But, you know, we ended up, we, we stopped the study a couple of weeks ago because we reached the milestone of 10 million participants with only five reported COVID cases in 36 countries. My sense is from from everyone I'm speaking to, it's less about apprehension of of getting on a start line. Um, you know, I, I, I'm and, and Bob's nodding there. I think, you know, there's seldom anyone I speak to who said participants says participants are worried to get onto a start line. I, I think it's more about what we spoke about before, uh, out of the habit, doing different things. There's no doubt that there's going to be some tough economic times coming. You know, int- interest rates are increasing, um, inflation's going to come through. And I and I and I think sometimes our industry is, and I don't have any stats that I've looked at to back it up, but you know, we're probably an industry that that is more recession proof in that because it's 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 less of a disposable income. It's getting out there. It's being able to engage. Um, there's a degree of escapism in it, maybe. Um, but as I say, I, I don't have any stats to to, to to back that up. 
I do have stats to back that up, Chris. Um, so I actually co-owned a uh, running store for a while back in the uh, 2000s. And um, during the 2008 re- recession, um, running stores did bonkers uh, business then because, you know, like not everybody lost their job. Not everybody was was bad. But and so it might not be cool to go out and buy an expensive car, but to go and buy a pair of shoes. And and even if you were kind of constrained in terms of your entertainment dollars that you could spend buying a pair of shoes and going out and running and spending 35 bucks on a 5k is not is not that um, extravagant. It's an interesting point, also that um, you know I had Peter Abraham on the on the uh, podcast that that you both know um, a few episodes back talking about branding, and we were discussing the challenges that events, regardless of the pandemic, face in people thinking through how to allocate their dollars. And he was saying that you know like an event these days may be a hundred dollars, then you know add this and that to it, and then for two people to go out and race, maybe even out of town it comes up to a few hundred dollars and people might think, you know, I can either race or do something else, which to me, you know, that I do a couple of races a year that I really love, you know, I I seem to have like a different kind of like wallet for my racing budget. I wouldn't think of it as fungible, but do do we feel that's the case that maybe as disposable income comes a little bit, gets a little bit tighter, that people would actually have to make those decisions between going out on a race or, you know, going out to the theater, say, or doing something completely different? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, everybody has to make their own decisions on that. But I think that people have plenty of money to go out and sign up for a race. And while, yeah, it may hurt some of the events where there's travel involved, I think most people are going to races that are within a 25 or 50 mile radius of their homes. I don't have exact stats on that, but that's my gut feel. So like, I don't, I think it's that people have gotten used to doing other things over the past three years rather than they're not willing to spend, you know, you know, 0.05% of their budget on signing up for a, for a race. I would second that. And, and, and also I, I think that there's a, a great opportunity for more experiences and boutique experiences, you know, people going out of town for a weekend and, you know, that maybe you said, well, you don't travel, but my sense is that there is an opportunity to put on more of an experience than a race where people go away, you know, within a long, not a long distance from, from home. Um, and, and some of the statistic from, um, uh, from sports travel magazine um, from, from, from Jason was that people were actually prepared to travel further domestically than they were prior to the pandemic to go and have those kind of experiences in, 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 in other towns and so on. So I think pe- people who get the mix right uh, around uh, the experience and and the run, the triathlon, the the whatever it may be, um, I, I think that there's great opportunities there. You know, going away with the family, people want to reconnect. I think more and more people have reconnected with nature and the outdoors and things. So I think it maybe means a challenge for more urban events, uh, city events may may be more challenged. And 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 you know, fr- from that perspective, I mean, you you've seen the massive boom in in, in what's having happening in trail running, no doubt, and you know what's happening in. Grand biking you know people are wanting to reconnect with nature the 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 setup and delivery costs of those kind of events are, are lower um obviously the capacities in some instances might be limited so you know that but but it seems to me without 
huge experience and, and, and interrogation of the business model that, that those are probably going to be more sustainable um, and, and, and there'll they'll be interest in being able to go and do those. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I think it makes sense that when things come back, you know, you have a different appreciation of your time and maybe you want to try and aim to do events that have something to offer in terms of experience that, you know, you may not just go and run your local, you know, non-distinct race that, you know, over the weekend and you may just save yourself to go and do those those other events. In terms of um, no-show rates, uh, I know Bob obviously has the experience from Run Sign Up and the data there and and you, Chris, had some thoughts on that in your in your recent pieces. Do we have any idea what no-show rates are doing uh, currently in the industry? Yeah, I just got some some interesting stuff again from Pia uh, today that in, in Europe, those have now dropped to 10% over the last couple of weeks. Um, in, in other markets, I'm still hearing that around, you know, 20, 25% in some markets. But yeah, it was, it was interesting that across Europe on, on a basket of events that have happened in the last couple of weeks, that seems to, you know, I, I've, I've for a long time seen 10% as kind of like the norm pre, pre-COVID. There was an example that, you know, totally contradicts that. There was, I think it was the Cardiff Half Marathon, which you may be aware of, Panos, two weeks ago, 52% no-show rate. And obviously, that's probably being skewed in many parts by the deferred entries. You know, people just now having to say, well, I better, I, I've, I've got to kind of check it in before I lose it. So I'll, I'll say I'm going to go and then I don't go. So it, I think it's hard to get a, a true read on on what that means. But obviously, from a PL perspective, it's a it's a huge impact. Um, and, and, you know, and that's that combined with that issue of late registrations. How, how do you order your t-shirts, your medals, and even your your kind of perishable supplies of you know your water and your bananas and you know how many volunteers do you need and all that kind of stuff. So it definitely has a, a PL impact and 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 it seems to be leveling off in some markets, but it's still very variable in others, is what I'm seeing. Bob, any insight on the US? What's happening with no-show rates? I don't have any uh, hard data that I prepared for this. Um, I can uh, I'll publish something later on in the coming weeks on that because we we have uh, technology for timers and we track that and we've not seen anything unusual. So my assumption is that we're still about ten percent, and that makes sense to me because people are kind of more cautious about signing up. And therefore, if they're signing up, they're going to be more conscious about making sure that they attend. Okay. Now, in terms of, I guess, the one thing that may not be obvious uh, to everyone, and of course, every race director has their own personal experiences um, on that. So it might be useful for us all to inject some broader statistics on this. What's happening with local authorities, with the people, you know, like giving out the permits? supporting races on the ground, welcoming or not welcoming, in some rare cases, races back into their communities. What do we th- think is the, the, the feeling and the situation on the ground there with the people that you know, stand on the, on the other side of the fence, working with race organizers to, to bring on events locally? They're kind of the same thing as race organizers. The story I told them, race organizers, they're like, oh, geez, you're back. You want to run out? You want us to close down the roads? Do you know how much of a pain it is to close down Main Street to have your Scott Coffee run? Oh, geez. Some local cities are just, you know, kind of tapping, tamping down even more. And and it's becoming more difficult, more expensive. You know, uh, police rates are increasing. And, you know, it's a major source of frustration in the U.S. 
that's mirrored and it comes back to the great resignation as, as well. Um, massive staff turnover in the last two years. So, you know, many, many people turning up to, to go and apply for a permit, speaking to someone completely new who's come in from a, from a different department, maybe who's got no history with the event. Um, resourcing is a, is a huge issue. So um, you might be aware of this, Bob, that the Illinois Marathon uh, which, if I'm correct, is a marathon, a half marathon, a 10k and a 5k, or I, I might have the the lesser distances. They couldn't get a permit for their marathon because there were not enough police to be able to close the roads. I heard a story. I think it was in Dallas. Um, 50 to 60 police headcount short to be able to close a road. No permit at all for the event. Um, I'm hearing some issues in, in in other countries of of just. Councils now emboldened and empowered by COVID um, because they've been able to enforce other COVID-related rules and now are now putting, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm more powerful than I was before in, 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 in minimal experiences. Um, but, but certainly some of that happening, I, I'm, I'm not now more of a, a powerful council member and I'll flex my muscles and make it difficult for you. But, but then, you know, I, I had some feedback from, from, from some people saying that they're not aware of events that are not getting their permit if they come with a, a collaborative approach, they've got a good plan, they've been flexible. If I'm the old-fashioned race director that's been around for 20 years and it's like, I don't need that young whippersnapper behind the counter telling me that I need a permit and I need to do this and do that, yeah, you're probably going to now be encountering problem. But if you come in recognizing that both sides have a challenge, you know, as as Bob said, you know, you don't want us to close down the main street because, you know, we got the shop owners protesting and the hotels that are and the people can't get to church and all the all the events that every event deals with, but they have to deal with those. And I've always said, you know, put myself in the shoes of the permitting authorities and understand what the problems they have to solve and let's solve them together. And we're more likely to get an outcome that's beneficial as opposed to I'm the marathon that's been here for 20 years and I need to get my permit again. Surprise, surprise, you're probably not going to get your permit in, in the new world that we live in. So certainly hearing of people being asked to provide extra staff, extra barricades. And I think, again, with the glass half full, this possibly presents an opportunity for the, the industry to come together in, a, in an area and say, OK, let's work together as all the events that are here. And why don't we go to the council and put a solution together and train up more of our volunteers to be Traffic, uh, traffic managed, uh, trained, and all those kind of things, and 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 find a solution that's going to benefit everyone. And I think you know one of the the real goods that's come out of this is is collaboration. And if I go back to you know when I started in the industry, and and, and in the most simplistic term, uh, and it still happens in some parts, you'd finish an event and you'd get a flyer for all the events that were coming up. What were we doing? We were fundamentally sharing databases, weren't we? But if you go to someone now and say cross-promote to your database and advertise my event on your Facebook page. Some people do it, but most people would say, oh, why would I do that? I can't do it. But that's how the industry was founded during the running boom. We were all sharing each other's databases in an old-fashioned way. And that degree of collaboration, I think, can help with, with the rebirth in these areas that are struggling. I mean, it's interesting you bring that up. We, we had a couple of comments um, in the group as well around this point that I didn't personally expect make some sense, I guess, that businesses and local businesses may be, may be seeing the case of events being put on in their area and disrupting the regular flow of business with a slightly, a slightly different perspective, actually. So, you know, you often see some antagonism now, not only from local residents, you know, like some residents that, you know, 
always raise some issues around that, but also local businesses being a little bit more reluctant to sign off on these things or maybe, you know, like jump on the train of, you know, oh, this is going to bring new people to the area, like, you know, the, the, the economic impact case. By the way, since you raised this point, uh, Chris, I, I'm wondering, since I have the both of you here, there had been some efforts, speaking of collaboration, of uh, some organizations being formed during the pandemic to promote the interests of the industry. We had, uh, you know, several um, sort of like endurance industry and endurance alliance across organizers and, and other stakeholders in different countries, in Canada, in the US, in California, there was one in the UK. Do you guys have a sense for um, how effective those were and generally as an industry, how well we responded in terms of like coming together and, and fighting a case for the industry during the pandemic? My sense is that it's been it's been a struggle, and quite a lot of them, unfortunately, are are losing steam now. Um, and, and so it depended a little bit on what their kind of terms of reference were. You know, some of them were set up as as lobbying groups to get funding and get approvals for events. Others of them have taken a more so, for example, AMSI, the Australian Mass Participation Sports Events Alliance, is really looking at a long-term legacy of education and collaboration and, and so on on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, some of them have moved, you know, I'm aware of, uh, you know, the endurance, and I always get the Canadian and American one mixed up. You might need to help me, Bob. Endurance Sports Coalition, I think, is in, in America, isn't it? So they've passed their responsibilities or, or their work to running USA and running USA is now driving that. Uh, you know, my sense in in Canada is that you know it's 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 a it's a couple of people that are driving it. Uh, a very uh, huge amount of work went into into CISO in France, um, and they have a, a you know a formal formally um, registered organisation as AMSI does. They have all of the major federations on board running cycling, triathlon, and so on. Um, and the feedback I've had this week is they they're really struggling to get the industry to sign up. Uh, and 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 I, and I think you know in my sense that's a shame because I think that if if we'd had a bigger voice as an industry globally ahead of this, um, I, I think that we might have had an opportunity. We'll never know, but might have had an opportunity to come out of this sooner than we did. Uh, you know, we we were always at the back of the queue. Stadium events were coming back, and the analogy that I, I often drew was. You know, you saw the seating bowl with scattered people in it, but the, the best analogy was people going into a stadium and leaving a stadium. That's exactly what's happening on a start line. It was allowed to happen with people going into a stadium or in the concourse, and the picture you saw was was in the bowl. But those organizations have this lobbying power and and and, and the commercial power that our industry hasn't managed to, to do. I'm, I'm not saying it's easy, but you know, if we can continue to build this collaboration and representation and, you know, the thing that there's a real dearth of is research and data that backs backs up the impact that we make. I still don't think we make the case as an industry broadly, whether that be country by country, city by city or globally, of the enormous impact that our industry makes, uh, you know, not only economically, but on, on the health and well-being of, of populations. I think that it's a tough argument to make. I, th- I think it's a tough challenge. I mean, if you look at the U.S., people spend about a billion dollars a year to sign up for races um, in, in normal times, and you know a billion dollars of transaction volume is just not very big. <laughs> you know, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, and I was and I was reading and thinking about lobbying, and different organizers and states were trying to figure out, you know, how do we how do we do lobbying to the federal government to get attention on the endurance community and and things like that. 
And I was reading this article about Las Vegas and how like how much and I can't remember the numbers, but like one casino and how much transaction volume they process in a year. Like one casino is bigger than the entire endurance community. And so like so like just our ability to really make an impact, I I really became jaded by by that. And then when you look around at the the organizations that are part of this, Race Directors Hub is is basically you, Panos, and that's created this this virtual community. Um, if you look at running USA, it's only a couple people, and they're under severe economic pressure because most of their revenue comes from their conference. Conference attendance was down the past couple of years. You know, the expo area was down, and and so like. At the end of the day, we're all just a bunch of small little businesses trying to survive. And and it's been a tough couple of years. And I think it was unrealistic to expect that we could impact things. And yeah, we could have done a better job maybe, but I, I think it was always kind of a, a doomed effort. <laughs> so Bob, speaking of data, maybe you have some data on the number of races that don't seem to be coming back onto the market in terms of races that used to happen and races that, you know, on their scheduled dates, at least for uh, more than a year even, may not be coming back. Do we have a sense for what that number may currently be running at and, and what would be more like a steady state number from before the pandemic? Because, you know, events just didn't repeat back then as well. Yeah. So, We've been tracking since 2017 um, this term called churn, and in software businesses, that's what you that's what you track to see the health of your business and stuff. And we track two types of churn. And we did it on a monthly basis. We've done it on a monthly basis since 2017, and uh, we do it for only races that are over 500 um, on our platform that happen each month. And so we have been tracking that historically. So pre-pandemic, about five to 6% of races don't happen from one year to the next. And then um, we happen to lose between 1% and 2% um, to competitive churn for various reasons. Mostly that Gannett bought up in motive, I am athlete and rugged maniac, <laughs> rugged maniac. But, um, but anyway, you know, the no race churn is really the considerable churn. And so um, the report that we just did uh, includes those numbers in detail, but roughly speaking, from January to April, the number of uh, races that churned was about twenty to twenty-five percent. If you take that three-year hiatus, you know, and you multiply the six percent, it's kind of in that same range that it always had been. So maybe a little bit more, but it is considerable when you take it over that period of time and. Are things like they were in 2019? No, there's been at least a 20% shift just because that's the way the world always worked. Um, but there's also been a little bit more pressure, and that's why there's a few more races not happening. Like I said, we're we are fortunate. So I'll give you the April number as an example. So in 2019, there were 241 races above 500 on our platform that happened in April of 2019, and 62 of those churned. So they did not happen in 2022, but we gained an additional 178. So this is why our numbers kind of are inflated some. So it, the the problems underneath were kind of hidden from us. 
And we don't have a sense, I guess, for those races, whether these are gone for good or whether they might come back a year down the line, I guess, or do we? No, I would say 90% of them are gone for good. I don't have access to, to to much of that sort of data, except anecdotal. I, I shared earlier that you know the, the the folk in in Thailand are telling me that eighty percent of races won't return, um, and you know that's a combination of races and businesses. Um, in Australia, they're saying twenty to thirty, and maybe that's that that's increased a little bit. So yeah, that that, that those are kind of some of the examples that that I have. You know, I've heard fifty percent in some other countries, but not with any reliable data that like like bob's got this is all just anecdotal uh, and, and you know again in, in in those markets with another cycle to go i think that in in quite a lot of these markets we are going to see more pain in the next six months i think there's a there, there's a sense that great the pandemic's gone we're coming back again but the lack of reserves to restart the engine in some places i think is going to have um, at, at the risk of sounding negative, uh, it, it's going to have a, a significant impact in some places, I think. People have used a lot of reserves to survive. In 2019 at MPW in Singapore, the, the biggest conversation both on and off the stage was around the broken business model in, in, in most markets for, for large sections of the market. You know, there's, there's certainly sections that are making significant money, but a lot of kind of break-even, small profits, small loss businesses. And so just in simple economic terms, you say entry fees mostly flat, and I'd love to get Bob's take on that in the US, but in most markets, I'm hearing you know people worry to increase entry fees. The staff issues, input costs, generally, I'm hearing an average 20 to 30%, in some markets more. Um, and then the impact of the staffing in, in, in any sector, that becomes a less sustainable business model. And then with the, with the limited reserves that most of our industry has, and you know, there's there's some concerning signs. Uh, you know, I've heard some stories of 2023. We we spoke about registration trends, but some 2023 events already selling out, and even at 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 10 percent more, um, based on a similar entry level to 2019. Um, and without any proof, my 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 gut feel is that that has to be a cash flow grab to try and sustain over the next six months. And, and and that potentially creates a huge stain on our industry. And again, I'm not trying to be negative here, but you know, we we, we spoke about trust earlier on of of people not getting their refunds, and we now have a bunch of events that are taking entry fees that don't survive, and then you know they can't even give a credit for a next year's event; it's just gone. And then the suppliers that get bought down in the process of that, I I, I think in some markets we're going to see more challenges in, in the next six months as, as we head towards, towards and, you know, and that might be quite a lot of the Asian markets, but it wouldn't surprise me to see quite a lot of the mid-tier go under. I think the top of the pyramid's got the resources, the smaller two and two and three-person, you know, passion projects, the not-for-profits uh, that have got no, no and low overheads would be fine. But the mid-tier, I, I, th- I think, is going to struggle significantly unless, and, you know, I, I'm asking the question, I'm seeing some, you know, some aggregation happening in, in, in markets like the US, but I asked the question in, in other markets and I'm not seeing much sense of investment of people coming in and, and aggregating and buying up events and so on. I hope I'm so, so wrong, but my sense is that there's going to be more pain to come from the next kind of six months as people try and find the resources to restart the engine. 
Did you know that in a recent survey, 73% of responders said that reading reviews influences which races they enter? Well, RaceCheck is the largest aggregator of race reviews in the world and has collected over 40,000 race reviews for over 6,000 events globally. So how can you collect more reviews for your event and make the most of them to increase your race registrations? Well, you can start by listening to our Power of Race Reviews podcast from September 20th last year. There's plenty of tips there on growing your race reviews. And then visit organizers.racecheck.com. That's organizers with an S dot racecheck.com to download your free RaceCheck review box so you can start showing all your race reviews on your website for an instant boost to your race's social proof and conversions. It really is a no-brainer. So go to organizers with an S dot racecheck.com and download your free RaceCheck review box today. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. In terms of entry fees, I thought you made a, a very interesting point in your paper about uh, the elephant in the room and the broken business model. And I think I was looking at uh, the race trends data from the last uh, run signup report from last year, and it's a little bit difficult to compare like for like because of the effect of virtual events in there. But it seems like there's no rush for people, and I've interviewed a couple of race directors on this, to, to hike prices despite what's happening, which is fairly existential in some cases. Why is that the case? Because everyone is hiking prices left, right, and center. I mean, you know, inflation, increased costs are trying are starting to trickle in through the cost of organizing events, and people are still they're hesitating from rising prices. Why? Why would that be? I'll tell you why. What's the reason that all three of us got into this community? It's because of passion, right? And all the people that are, or most of the people that are organizing these races, also got into it for passion. What I see by and large is not necessarily business people running these organizations. It's passionate people. And they just don't want to harm the participants. And they are so anxious to get participants back. They think if they raise the price by five bucks, they're not going to get as many participants back. And I, I think that's... I. I I, I was thinking when Chris was talking and, and he was just talking all economics, right? And that at the end of the day is what drives it. But I think that the passion is kind of um, kind of leveling it out. And so at least in the US and our customer base, um, I feel a little bit more positive that we're not going to have catastrophes. Um, we're not going to have people showing up, a thousand people showing up and there's and there's no race there and stuff. I'm a little bit more hopeful on that front. You know, the, at the end of the day, though, their their net income is not going to look good over the next couple of years until, until they adjust. And people are going to need to raise prices. That's just a simple fact. Um, I've had a couple discussions with passionate race directors that also care about the economics of it because <laughs> they have to pay a mortgage and so forth. And that's a simple fact that's, that's going to happen. But what's your thought, actually, Bob, on the price elasticity point? Do you believe that raising prices is going to drive people away or not? No, I don't think it will. I think people are going to come back. Um, I think people are slow to come back just because they're out of the habit. But Netflix just increased prices to everybody, right, by uh, by 10% or so. And yeah, they had like 0.1% of people turn off their Netflix accounts. I think you'll have a 0.1% people that decide not to run the Scott Coffee race because we raised the price from 30 to 35 bucks. 
but we kept it at 30 this year just because that's what we've always done. And, and you know, we don't want to change things. And this little race I'm involved in, I think it's a microcosm of what everybody else is going through. <laughs> and, it, and it's just the reality practical what happens with common sense at the end of the day. But I will bet you that we raise it to 35 bucks next year. <laughs> Yeah. And Chris, I guess you agree with that in terms of elasticity and, and the effect raising prices might have on participation overall? Yeah, I, I think so. And and again, I think it's, you know, if, if we're talking across a, a basket of events, I think at, at, at the lower level, less so. Um, you know, a, a, an interesting example, you know, the PTO launched their triathlon and, 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 and they marketed that at a premium level and they had to back off and reduce and reduce their entry fees. That remains to be seen what what will happen in 2023 and and, and as we move beyond. I, I think inevitably it has to go up. My concern is without putting it up in the next six months, can these businesses survive? You know, even even the passion projects. And you know, we're so right, that base of the pyramid is made up of thousands of these events. I worry from two perspectives. I worry from a cash flow perspective, but I also worry from a liability perspective. You know, what what are those unknowing passionate event organizers doing in exposing themselves from a liability perspective if they're not able to put on the event because they've paid the deposit for the t-shirts and the medals and then the cash flow is such that you know they can't pay the final one and 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 I think Bob's right you you know you're hopefully not going to have a whole bunch of thousand people events where people don't turn up I'm more concerned I think you know I'm talking about the mid tier here the bottom the bottom the 500,000 people events I I think those will continue and sustain because they've got low overheads that they're probably mostly in places where they've got low staff overheads and they've got low delivery overheads because they're not closing down city centers they're more in more kind of rural park-like locations you know and and, and the infrastructure is simple but when you get into more of the staffing overheads and 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 you know more more of the uh, you know the the equipment and things that go in there where the the prices have gone up significantly that's where i think we might see some issues i think that's true for a purely professional organization like like a for profit organization i think in the mid tier there is potential but even those organizations are typically sponsored you know, by sponsors, they've got connections to nonprofits, they've got some sort of connection and support with a city and community building and and things like that. And so we have a lot of those mid-tier events on our platform, you know, the thousand to 10,000, you know, person events. And we're seeing those, the leaders of those organizations are passionate enough to pull it off somehow, some way. Things are tight, but they're figuring it out. And, and that's, that's kind of what we're seeing. Um, and we're seeing, you know, and we have measurements with NPS scores and things like that, that we, that we track and races by and large are doing a fairly decent job. So like, we've not seen a, a radical drop. We haven't had, you know, knock on wood, but we haven't had any bad experiences yet. And that's with thousand plus races happening, you know, every month on our platform. And I guess for those kinds of races, I think I tend to agree with Chris, are the most susceptible in terms of the bottom of the pyramid with the passion events and the really high-end, you know, like really multi-million dollar operations. That middle layer of people who put on races for a living, they also now probably have to contend with the additional headwind of having some of the 
government support and loans, perhaps, that they entered into during the pandemic that have to be repaid. And right at the moment where, you know, maybe some of them were expecting that would be out of it or that we would be at a better place, you have those payments kicking in that, that I think you mentioned in an article there, Chris. Yeah, certainly that's, you know, what, what I'm hearing ac- across Europe is that, you know, governments gave loans and they gave kind of 18-month honeymoon periods on those and, and, and those are being called in now and, and, and some people are struggling to be able to pay those back. Um, and again, you know, it's anecdotal from, from a couple of quarters. As a generalization, the structures in Europe are around not-for-profit, so I think maybe maybe less of a less of an issue there. But but certainly that was the feedback that I had is that they they're struggling uh, to to be able to repay. In in Asia, it's much more of a business model generally, so less of a club, less of a not-for-profit situation. Um, and and so I think ma- many of those have have struggled. We had this kind of as the industry came here, we had this explosion of. Every man and his dog thinking that that it was a profitable industry and they could jump into it and make a make make a fortune. Um, and you know the, the the business model here is is kind of completely the reverse. That in in most Asian countries, the the entry fees are are so low that without a government grant or a decent sponsorship, it's not commercially sustainable. So you you know you have situations now where an event's been around for a number of years, they lose a sponsor or they lose a government grant. Um, and, and they can't survive on the on the entry fee revenue that comes through. And so where, where you sit in, in, in the more evolved markets, for want of a better expression, US particularly and, and parts of Europe, is that, you know, the sponsors are almost kind of like the cream on the top and, and, and the entry fee revenue sustains, you know, a large proportion of the P&L. Um, it, it, it's very much a different model in, in, in this part of the world. Yeah, and in the U.S., the PPP program and the employee uh, retention tax credit program were both fully like you didn't have to pay them back. Basically, under on, only under rare circumstances did you have to pay them back. And so, you know, Run Sign Up was certainly the beneficiary of those, and the government helped us through that time. We were able to retain all of our employees and actually grow our employee base uh, because of those uh, programs. Um, but there's no kind of there's no clawback that's happening in the U.S. So we don't have that that overhead. The only overhead that races see is if they deferred a bunch of participants from their 2020 or 21 race into 22 and 23. So they're not getting revenue. It's kind of like your story, Chris, of where people are selling 23 race entries, but you know, is the cash going to last all the way until 23, right? Yeah. That's sort of like, uh, I guess in some cases, these deferrals, they almost act like having taken a loan out from yourself, from your future revenue. So, you know, you now, I mean, you got the cash to the door and now you have to deliver the event and you have all of those people wanting to come back and participate. Before we wrap up, I wanted to spend a minute. I, I was reading the uh, latest race participant trends piece from Run Sign Up, which maybe you have authored, actually, Bob. And I read this line in there that says, "What did I say? Oh no!" <laughs> well, it's it's actually it's actually very interesting. It, it says, and I think pretty profound that there has been the report says a disconnect that has grown between events and their participants. And we mentioned this point on loyalty and how that sort of like gap has grown. And and I'm guessing, you know, like during the pandemic, dates and locations shifting around between events didn't help much, you know, like events rushing to to come in in the fall of the year when, when events opened up. Do we have any sense of 
practical steps perhaps that that organizers can take to to bridge that gap and, and rekindle some of that enthusiasm between races and the and the communities we serve i think direct honest open communication is the way to go that's all, always been my mantra and and i think it comes down to this this idea of loyalty and support we have this term called supporter engagement that organizations need to engage their supporters. They need to find ways to thank them, to reward them, to get them to contribute and feel a part of whatever that community is, whether it's a race or, or whatever. And so, um, again, it, it comes back to having the energy to do those sorts of things. You know, it's, it's, it's having training programs before an event. It's, you know, sending lots of emails, it's sending special coupons to, you know, uh, loyal customers. And, you know, if you've run a, a race two times, you get 20%. If you've run it three times, you get 25% or something like that can really have an impact. If you open up races um, and say, okay, this opening is just for our loyal customers and the special price is just for our loyal customers and we need, and also just asking directly, we need your support. You know, you've always supported us. You've always been there for us. We need your help now more than ever. So I think communicating like that and, and doing it in an aggressive, open, authentic way is, is the way to go. Yeah, I agree with everything that Bob said. And, 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 I, and I think it's also asking them what they want as well. I think it's sometimes as, as races, we kind of assume that you know, because we've been doing this for five years, this is what we should do. Because we've been doing it for 10 years, we should do that. Consumers have evolved and and, and COVID has meant an evolution. And, you know, what what what's the, you know, in any good business, what's the problem that we're solving for a participant? What's their pain points? How, how can we, you know, b- because we did it like this in 2019, does that mean it's still what those participants want in 2021? And 22 and 23, sorry, 20, 22 and 23. Um, but, you know, in, engaging with them in a way that, that, that is authentic and open, as Bob said, uh, you know, we, we, we want to hear from you. And, I, and I've been saying for a while that I think one of the biggest missed opportunities in our industry is this year round engagement. And that's very easier said than done. But, we, you know, we, we, we have this opportunity where we've got this loyal group of followers who sign up to our events, who participate in them. And how often do you see a, a kind of a, dear Bob, entries have open, please sign up. Thanks for signing up. Here's your training program. Here's your course map. Here's the, the details. Here's your e-certificate. But thanks. And then there's a, there's a deathly hush for another three, four, five months. And those same organizations will go out and spend money in various forms to try and acquire new customers when they're not engaging with those customers that they've got. You know, we pretty much every event sits on a on on a gold mine of 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 their own data of people that have willingly subscribed to to being part of their community. And 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 I think you know as a generalization, there's probably opportunities to engage with them. And the ones that have done that well during COVID, surprise, surprise, like like Bob and his business are, are the ones that are reaping the rewards now. Yeah, I think you both mentioned it, and it's something that comes up uh, in discussions I'm having with marketing people who who work with races, that year-round engagement is both a huge missed opportunity, even regardless of where we've been and having to rekindle loyalty, is something that events just need to get better at. There's there's huge opportunities there. I was even, when I was talking to Fitzcoller and Steve Fleck on the Race Announcers episode, they were saying that for some events, even though races weren't happening, 
they did live events and other stuff for their runners throughout the pandemic. And that's what events should have done, right? Keep keep people involved, maybe go out, put a community run on, or like, yeah, just try to get people to feel like they're still connected with the brand. Which, of course, brings us to one final issue in all this and one final stakeholder, which is the sponsors. And one discussion I had with with Ben Pickle in an earlier podcast who does um, all the uh, sponsor partnerships for lifetime events is that, you know, and asked him, you know, what new approach would you take to sponsorship now after the pandemic? And he said, you know what, we actually need to re-educate sponsors on the benefit of sponsorship. Because like other things we mentioned, sponsors in the meantime, in the last two years, they've gone around, started doing other things, tried other things, and maybe they're even questioning the value of even going back and sponsoring events. And it's not even the case of having to, you know, like go out and win sponsors or convert sponsors from other events. The whole industry need, need to remind sponsors of the value that event sponsorships bring, which is sounds to me like a very uphill struggle. I agree with you. I think certainly, you know, from what I'm hearing, sponsorship is is being much more considered. Um, that said, I'm also hearing, you know, the, the feedback from from a couple of the people in Latin America is that more brands are looking to get engaged with the industry. They see the opportunity to be connected with that community. I think one of the key points is around data um, or data, depending where you come from and how you pronounce it. But um, <laughs> uh, I, I think think data is key, and and as an, an industry. We sit on masses of amounts of data, but the number of sponsorship managers I speak to is so that race organizers come to them and they've got no no data to showcase, you know, how they engage and even who the demographic is, but going going way beyond that. I think as a generalization, sponsorship in mainstream sport and other areas is moving more towards performance-driven sponsorship as well. So that presents a challenge for our industry, but also an opportunity if you're prepared to to engage and truly partner rather than, you know, I try to use the term partnership rather than sponsorship. Uh, And if you build those real partnerships uh, with the opportunity that you get rewarded for delivering on a bunch of KPIs and you work collaboratively towards that, and even and even around the data space, you know, these small organizations that, you know, don't necessarily have the tools or know-how. Is there an opportunity for you to partner with your sponsor and say, you know, y- yes, you you obviously have to do it with it with all the compliance, but how can we analyze this data and what are the data points that would be valuable to you? And you know, can can we use your your back office because we don't have the resources or the know-how to to deliver that? That means that we get rewarded as we go through, possibly. Wrapping up, if we took a moment to look ahead, I know uh, both of you earlier said that you expect somewhat of a stronger fall ahead. Where do you guys think we're going to be at in six months' time? And then how do you think, I mean, it's it's very early, I guess, but how do you think 2023 is going to unfold for the industry? I think we're going to see kind of a steady kind of comeback, but it's going to take like a full two years in, in my mind um, because I think that it, it just needs time for new um, new organizations to come into the market, um, and for new events to kind of uh, mature some, and I think it's going to take time for like the existing events to reconnect with their participants and their customers. But I think that it's going to come back. One of the things that everybody talked about kind of early in the pandemic was, look how many people are outside running man, there's going to be so many people that are going to come to the races. 
And um, that did not happen because all those people running outside were kind of got used to running on their own, right? Um, but I do think that there is a natural tendency in spite of Facebook and TikTok and Instagram that people do want to get together and people do want to commune and people do want to be a part of an event that has a greater purpose than just themselves. I think at the end of the day, that that will win uh, over everything. So um, hopefully we don't spend all of our lives in the metaverse and and lose our uh, ability to walk and, and things like that. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I, I totally agree uh, with what Bob's there. I think, you know, we, we are... We are creatures of community, and 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 once people rediscover that love, I th- I think there w- there will be opportunities. Will it be two years or three years? I, I think it will definitely take time. The one the one thing that I've found that the only thing that's consistent is inconsistency during this period of time. So as a as a generalization, you know, the markets that I'm across are all so varied. So you know, some of them may come out of it in six months. Some of them may take four or five years to get out. If we're looking back on this, the glass half full, absolutely. It's an incredible opportunity for our industry. I think we we need to tell the story better about what it is that we are, you know, what are the problems we're selling and, and what is it that we're creating? Are we delivering races or events or are we building communities? Are we delivering health and well-being to communities? Uh, you know, what what are the problems that as an industry we're solving? Um, but 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 I think there is a, there's an amazing future when it eventually reemerges. But 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 I, I feel there's going to be some short term pain before we get those amazing long term gains. It's exciting as we look forward. Let's hope when we regroup in 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 six months time or something that things are indeed going to be looking better. And there hasn't been another another wave of COVID or whatever. I think I think we're running out of letters by now. Just to wrap up. Do you want to um, maybe share some details with people of of where they can find out a little bit more about your organizations and yourselves, and even if you're willing to share your email in case people want to get in touch about anything we've discussed or other stuff? For us, it's runsignup.com, runsignup.blog. Um, my email is bob.bickle at runsignup.com. And uh, my personal website is bobbickle.com. So you can... Uh, you can find me there. And that's B as in Bob, I-C-K-E-L. <laughs> awesome. And if you send me an email I and, and mention this podcast, I will send you $5 because I want to see if anybody actually listens this far in. They do. Maybe <laughs> maybe they're not very keen to get in touch, but I'm sure they do. I'm happy to match you there, Bob. So my, my email is chris at massparticipationworld.com. Send me an email. I'll send you a copy of my book, Mass Participation Sports Events, uh, which I published in 2015. And and connect with me. LinkedIn is probably the you know my my preferred platform. Chris Dash Rob uh, from an MPW perspective, MassParticipationWorld.com uh, Facebook page, LinkedIn pages for that. And yeah, delighted to help anyone in in any way I can. Um, you know, as 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 we've we've heard, we're passionate about this industry. It makes a massive impact on on the health and well-being of humanity and you know i'd love to see it grow and if there's anyone i can help wherever they are in the world please don't hesitate to contact awesome well uh, guys thank you very much both for taking the time to join me today it's been um, very helpful in understanding where we are and some of the issues the industry is facing 
I'm going to head off now and try to create as many uh, fake email accounts as I can and start emailing Bob for those $5. <laughs> no limits on that. I mean, it's all official. It's all, it's all on air. Thank you very much again. Thanks so much for everything you do for our community. Seriously, you do, you do a Thank really, you. really nice job. Absolutely. Panoff, one, wonderful to, to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Keep up the great work. Thank you, guys. I'll see everyone on our next podcast. I hope you enjoyed this market update episode with my guests, Mass Participation World's Chris Robb and Run Signups' Bob Pico. You can find more resources on anything and everything related to race directing on our website, racedirectorshq.com. You can also share your questions about today's discussion or anything else in our Facebook group, Race Directors Hub. Many thanks again to our awesome podcast sponsors, Run Signup and Racecheck, for sponsoring today's episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite player and check out our podcast back catalog for more great content like this. Until our next episode, take care and keep putting on amazing races.